You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. In the Gospels, we get this incredible picture, not only into the life and the teachings and the miracles and the passion of Jesus, but we also get a picture into the heart of Christ. And we're told that as Jesus was early on in his ministry, going from town to town, from village from village, and preaching about the kingdom of God, and starting to reveal part of this plan that he came in the world to fulfill, we see that when he looks at these crowds that began to follow them, he didn't look at them with callousness. He didn't look at them from a place of, of someone standing on high, looking down at the people. But it says that when Jesus looked at these crowds that were following him, that he saw them as lost, like sheep without a shepherd. And because of that, he had deep compassion for them and was moved for the hearts of these people that he was meeting and proclaiming the gospel to. And as Jesus is doing this with his heart filled with compassion, he goes to his disciples and he says, the fields are white with harvest. There are people that we're seeing in all these cities that are desperate and ready for the message of the kingdom. And so I want you to pray that God is going to send laborers into the harvest. Send people who can go out and do the work of the kingdom. And that's exactly what began to happen. Because those disciples that followed Jesus were tasked with building the church, with seeing more and more people come to follow after Christ and then sending them out under the banner of this commission to go and make disciples and to labor in those fields, to continue the work that Jesus began. And it's amazing when we think about this picture of the church being built and sent out into the world. Because the reality is God could have chosen absolutely any way that he wanted to, to bring salvation into the world. And he did. He chose us. He chose the church. And from Acts chapter 2, when we see the church in its infancy, all the way up until now, we've seen 2,000 years of the church going out and doing the work that we're called to do. Loving and worshiping and glorifying God proclaiming the gospel as often as we can, loving our neighbors as ourselves, giving to those in need and caring for those who need it. And we've seen a season of growing and working and serving and loving, even in the midst of our weakness, because the church has never been perfect. It's always been filled with weakness and at times hypocrisy and certainly imperfection. And we've also seen the church do these things through opposition, oppression, and even persecution all throughout history and throughout the world. But as we've looked at, in part, some of these works that the church is called to do, as we can look back through history and as we can look in our lives and the lives of Christians all over the world, we see so much good and important gospel work being done. But one of the things that the book of Revelation reminds us is that work is, is finite in its ability to be done. That there is an end date. We've seen the language in the past few chapters of three and a half years or 42 months or time, time and half a time. 
And this is not describing just a literal three years, but as we've seen, this is that big revelation symbolic language to help us understand a very finite and boundaried period of time that the church has been given to do this kind of gospel kingdom work. And we have this reminder that this season of kingdom growth that Jesus commissioned the church to be a part of will one day end and Christ will return to finish what he started. It's the big crescendo to the book of Revelation when Christ returns and makes everything right and everything new. And when you talk about this idea of the return of Christ, that's where we start getting kind of crazy headed. And where when people come to the book of Revelation, we start trying to look for all of these signs. And this isn't new to us. This isn't new to people that are combing through newspapers and social media and trying to figure out what blood moons mean and what harvest moons mean and what world events going around could possibly mean about the return of Christ and trying to figure this out. While Jesus was still moving and ministering through the world, his own disciples were asking him, so when is all this going to wrap up? When is all this going to finish? Are there any signs that we could be looking for? And while a lot of times we try to look for these really over-the-top and spectacular things to try to know when Christ would return, there are some signs that will let us know that the end is, is here, so to speak. But they're not the ones we often look for. And they're actually quite sudden. But as we look through the book of Revelation here, as we get to this mid part of chapter 14, we're going to see three signs that let us know that this time has come to a close and that Christ is coming to judge the world and redeem the world. And they're far more normal in appearance than we could possibly imagine. They are more sudden than we could possibly expect. But hopefully as we see these things, there'll be a reminder of the work that we are called to do and the fact that we have a very temporary time in which we can do it. And so as we look through these things, I wanna ask that you would pray along with me that God would challenge our hearts to recognize the importance of the mission that he's given to those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, that would call ourselves people who belong to the kingdom of God and the church of God, and that we would feel a gospel urgency to go out and to continue the work that Christ has given us to do until the day when our faith is made sight and Jesus puts everything back together. And so we're going to look this morning at Revelation chapter 14, verses 13 through 16. And I promise to the best of my ability, I'm not going to cough in this microphone through the entire service. But if it happens, just forgive me. It's been a long week. But let's read God's word here in Revelation chapter 14. John says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and who called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung its sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood froed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadium. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. <clears throat> Father God, we just thank you so much that as a God who can do all things, that you still desire us to be a part of what you're doing. God, I pray that you forgive us for the times when we are not diligent in our work of loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors ourselves. God, when we're lack in sharing the good news of the gospel with those that you've placed in our lives, when we're slow to care for those in need, when we're quick to anger and impatience and slow to mercy and grace. We gotta pray as we, as we talk about this moment that we've been given and recognize that there will be a time when, when evangelism ends. There'll be a time when our ability to, to do the work of, of your son to those who desperately need to see it will be over. God, I pray that you would give us a clear sense of urgency and passion to answer the call that you've given us to be the hands and feet and even the mouthpiece of Christ. So God, we just pray for conviction where we need conviction, for motivation where we need motivation, for encouragement where we need encouragement. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first little sign that we see here, that Christ is about to return and make everything right and everything new. And you'll hear me use that language a lot, not just this week, but as we continue on towards Revelation 20 and 21, that's gonna be the theme and the banner of what we see happening, that Christ is returning to bring everything to rights, to put everything back together and to make the world and his people into what we were made to be. And the first sign that we see that that's about to take place is that the work of the church the labor of the church, if you will, will cease and be no more. There's a time as Jesus is going about preaching about the kingdom of God, people were coming to follow him in droves, in part because they wanted to hear what he was teaching, but they also knew that he was healing people and that he was ministering to people in all of these ways. And so people were constantly trying to come to Jesus and follow him. And we have a lot of incredible stories of Jesus calling people to be his disciples, calling them out of lives of sin and brokenness, calling them out of lives of, of hurt and pain, saying, come and follow after me, and people leaving it all behind and chasing after Jesus. But we have an almost equal amount of stories where people came to follow Jesus, but he turned them away. Examples would be where people come to follow Jesus like the rich young ruler, 
who says, I've, I've followed all the rules. I've checked all the boxes. I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus says, cool, take all this earthly stuff that you've amassed and that you find your identity in, sell it, give it to the poor and come follow me. And he wasn't able to do it. There was another time when someone came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you, but first let me go tie up all the loose ends that I have at home. And then I'll come back. You just wait here. I'll go take care of my stuff. I'll come back and follow you. And then I'm yours. But Jesus says, no. He says, whoever puts their hand to the plow and turns back is not fit to follow after me. And it's a very grim reminder that following after Jesus is a life that is called to be one of labor, one of working and one of following Jesus. In fact, after the resurrection, Jesus gives two charges to his followers. Once in the book of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus says, it's your duty, it's your mission to go and to make disciples of all nations. You're not waiting for people to come and to find you and to find this message for themselves. It's your responsibility to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. But don't worry, I'll be with you till the end of the age. And then in Acts chapter 1, as we see Jesus about to ascend into heaven, he gives this final mission saying, hey, you guys are all going to receive this power through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to give you this power so that you can be my witnesses, so that you can go and continue the work that I started here in Jerusalem and Judea and Sumeria and all around the world. And so just like in Genesis chapter one, when we see humanity, that we were created to be a people of work and labor, Jesus institutes the church to be a place where we have a very clear mission and where we have work to do. Over the past couple of weeks, as we've been looking about, looking at the battle between the church and our spiritual enemy, we saw that our battle against our enemy comes in our testimony. It says that they conquered the devil, they conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And so it's our testimony and our worship of God that's able to stand against our enemy. And we worship God through the songs that we sing, through the prayers that we pray, through our, our personal time reading scripture, and all these things are important. But we also worship our God through our work is the hands and feet of Jesus, living out that great commission of going and making disciples of all nations, of being witnesses to Christ all over the world, and also carrying on that mantle where James calls us to live out our true religion of keeping ourselves unstained from the world and caring for the vulnerable and the broken in our society. But there will be a day when we lay that labor down. In verse 13, this voice from heaven says, write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed. And listen to what he says. The spirit says this, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. I think a lot of times when we talk about our eternity, the other side of, of, of life with Christ, we talk about the reward that comes in following Jesus. We talk about getting to be with Christ forever and how amazing that will be. We'll talk about worshiping Jesus forever. We talk about what Peter says, that it is an inheritance given to Christ, shared with us, that's protected and stored in heaven, just waiting for us to receive. 
We even talk a lot about what happens at the end of Revelation. When God says that he's going to wipe away every tear and that sickness and shame and brokenness will be no more and death itself will be no more and we will be perfected and glorified in Christ forever. But another thing that scripture tells us is directly tied into the eternity of a believer is the concept of rest. And while it may be something that we identify with death, because when somebody dies, we say rest in peace. I don't know how often we really think about what that means in the life of a Christian. What does it mean to have this eternal rest? In Hebrews chapter four, we see this language. Starting in verse one, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore my rest, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested from the seventh day from all his works. So rest is a part of the eternity for the Christian. But what does that mean? I think it's important that the writer of Hebrews notes there that we enter into God's rest. And so the rest that we have for eternity looks like and is in part of God's rest that we see in Genesis chapter one and two, that we see echoed again in the book of Exodus and now again in the book of Hebrews, that after God finished creating the world, it says on the seventh day that he rested. And so our rest eternally will reflect God's rest. But what does that look like? Does that mean that we just get to be lazy for all of eternity? That we, again, because we have these weird ideas of heaven and afterlife and beyond, that we just are some angel babies floating on clouds, playing our harps, maybe eating some grapes. I don't know why grapes are the, in the national food of heaven, but it seems like all the little angel babies and all of our pictures just float around eating grapes, playing harps, which harp music is beautiful, but they don't do anything. It's just this picture of just kind of slothful laziness for all of eternity. And so is that what it looks like? Is that what it looks like to rest in Christ and enter into God's rest? Well, not really. Because think about Genesis chapter one and two, when we see this picture of God resting on the seventh day. We've talked about this before, but clearly God doesn't need to actually rest. God wasn't really sleepy after he created the universe and just thinking, whew, I could use a vacation. Where would God go on vacation? I don't know. Anyway, <clears throat> But what we see in Genesis chapter one is God creating a temple, that this world is a temple that God created to be worshiped and, and adored and a temple in which he would rest and he would be the great high priest. And in the ancient world, when a temple was being constructed, the priests, they were the general contractors over that. They were supervising all the things that were taking place. And so they were acting out of their normal job and out of their normal duties. And so the priest would take off their breastplate of being a priest and they would put on their hard hats and they would oversee the construction of the temple. And then once the temple was finally built, they would enter into the temple and they would rest. But that doesn't mean they weren't working. They rested from the work of being builders and contractors and they entered into the work of being priests. And so when God rested on that seventh day, it wasn't that God just took a nap or went off and went on vacation somewhere, but he took off the hat of world builder and stepped into his role as God and governor and priest of the world. 
And in the same way, when we see this idea of eternal rest, when Isaiah gives us this picture of of this new heaven and this new earth, that John is going to echo that language in just a few chapters. It's a busy place. Isaiah sees these people who take their weapons of war, their swords, and they beat them, not into harps, but they beat them into plowshares to be used to work the fields. And we see this idea that people have roles and responsibility and work and labor that we do, but it's good and it's beautiful because it doesn't have the pain and the sting of sin that goes along with the consequences of what we've brought into the world, but it is good and perfect and restful work. And so now we do the work of kingdom building so that one day we'll be able to take off that hat and take on the work of kingdom living once and for all. But this is a reminder that our evangelical work, the work of spreading the gospel and showing the love and mercy of Jesus to those who need it in our world and seeing people come to faith in Christ, that work has an end date. And there'll be a time when we won't be able to do that anymore. But thankfully, it also has, because I've fought the the phrase temporary in my mind six times. So if it's looked like I've buffered at all, that's because the word temporary is in my mind. But our work isn't temporary. It's finite. It has a start date and an end date. But the work that we do here and now will never pass away because we see in this book here that it ripples throughout eternity. It says they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And so everything that we do for the cause of Christ right now will echo throughout the rest of eternity with us and will follow us into that rest. But of course, this makes us realize that there will be a time when we can no longer share our faith with those who don't know Christ. There will be a time when we no longer do the work of Jesus of standing against oppression and injustice. There will be a time when we no longer minister to those who are poor and broken and in need. And that time will end because Jesus is going to wrap all of those things up and put them back together. And so we have to ask ourselves, if I have this finite amount of time to do the work of Christ, how am I using it? Am I using this time to labor well, or am I resting on my laurels and not doing what I should be doing? How am I using the time that I've been given? And what deeds are going to follow me into that rest? And that should be a question that we ask ourselves every single morning and every single moment of the day. How am I using this day that I've been given? How am I using this hour that I've been given, this moment that I've been given? How am I using this breath that I'm taking in and out that God has allowed me to have for the purpose of going out and being a minister of the kingdom? Am I using it well Or am I wasting what's been given to me? And we need to ask this question daily because one day we won't be able to ask it anymore because the work of the church will cease. Another sign that we see here in this passage that Christ is coming again is that the number of God's people will be fulfilled. And these two things kind of go hand in hand, right? If the end of evangelism is coming, if the end of the ability to share our faith is coming, that means that no one else from that moment on will be able to put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. We've already seen over the past couple weeks in the book of 1 Peter that Peter says that God is patient. 
He says, don't count God's slowness to anger as slowness, but look at it as patience, that God is so patient with us that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants and he desires that everyone would come to a saving faith in Jesus. And we see that again in the book of Revelation, as we have these martyrs, those who have died for their faith in Jesus around the throne of God, crying out for vengeance, crying out for justice. And God says, no, just wait a little longer because there's more of you to come. There's more followers to come. There's more people who are gonna come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And we see this amazing picture of God constantly being patient with, with all of us, with humanity, waiting for more salvation to come. But then we see in this passage here, this picture of these angels with these sickles bringing in the harvest. And it's a continuation of this thought that Jesus had, this thing that Jesus says to his disciples, that the harvest is, is ripening, that it's white, ready for harvest. And now we see the same language here as, as the book of Revelation is telling us that there will be a day when that harvest is completely full and completely ready. And we get this reminder of this foreknowledge of God that he knows that one day there will be a time that comes when salvation ends. When the gospel will reach the ears of the last person who will respond in salvation, and that will be a sign and a picture that Jesus is coming again. We see a physical example of this in the book of Exodus. And again, the Old Testament helps us understand so much about the book of Revelation. In the book of Exodus, God sends Moses to the Pharaoh in Egypt to demand that he let the people of God, the Hebrew people, leave their slavery and their captivity. And Moses comes to the Pharaoh and he says, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, thank you. And so God sends a plague and then it goes again. Moses says, hey, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no, thank you. That's not going to happen. And the Pharaoh has multiple opportunities to decide to let the people of God go until we see a moment in this story where Moses comes before the Pharaoh just as he has before. And he says, let my people go. But the book says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so he no longer has even the ability to decide to let the people go. And Moses comes a couple more times, says, let my people go. But this Pharaoh with his hardened heart isn't even able to allow the people to go anymore. And then because of that, God brings in both the salvation of his people and the judgment of the Pharaoh and his as he takes the people of God out of Egypt, leads them towards the promised land. And in their wake is, is destruction and judgment that God rains down on the Pharaoh and his people. And now here in the book of Revelation, we see that picture on a cosmic level. That there is a time, and we're going to see this over the next couple chapters as, as this judgment of God comes and we see these haunting words that the people still didn't repent from their sins. There's a time when those who will follow after the gospel, that that number will be fulfilled and Christ will return in both deliverance and judgment. At the very beginning of this book, we see this idea that, that John believed that, that time was short. And now that's a relative term. We've seen that all through the book, that sometimes these small numbers represent very large things. At least it feels that way to us. But at the very beginning, John talks about these things that must soon happen. And he uses even the phrase, these last days. 
And again, that's the kind of language that confuses us a little bit when we talk about the end, when we talk about the last days, people get really nervous in that kind of language. But one thing that's clear is that there is a marker inside of scripture that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that institutes this final season as we wait for Christ to return and make everything right and everything new. And so the world does have a time stamp on it that one day Jesus is going to come and turn everything upside down and put it back the way that it's supposed to be. And while scripture tells us to not worry about trying to figure out when that will be, we have to recognize that it will in fact be. Now, a lot of times when the finish line is in sight, there's two ways that people tend to respond. And one way you see that finish line and maybe you start running harder and you start pushing more. But there's also a temptation that when we know something is coming to an end, we can start to kick back and relax. And that's the way that a lot of Christians look at, especially the things that are said here in the book of Revelation. That Jesus is going to come back, he's going to fix everything, he's going to put it back together, and so what I do now doesn't really matter at all, so I'm just going to sit back and wait. And a lot of our lives reflect that. That we're Christians in name, and we come to church and we worship and we do the bare minimum, but when it comes to doing the work of Christ, we think, you know what? What difference does it really make? I'm just going to live my life, check off my bucket list, because one day Jesus is going to come and all of this is going to be over. But many of Jesus' parables tell stories about a master over a field or over some finances or over some other things. And that master goes away for a while, but he leaves his servants with responsibilities. And a lot of times we reduce those stories to just being good stewards of money and finances and time. But these stories are, are apocalyptic. These stories are eschatological. They're telling us a big picture. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to go away for a little while. But while I'm away, you have the responsibility to take what's been given to you and put it to work. And in all of those stories, there's always a servant who either by fear or by selfishness <laughs> takes the work that he's supposed to do, hides it away, doesn't do anything with it and has nothing to show for his efforts when Christ returns, when the master comes home. And the consequences of unfaithfulness seem pretty severe when Jesus tells those stories. And so when we look at this idea that there will be a time when the harvest is full, when the number is complete of the people who are saved by God's grace, this isn't permission to rest, but this is a calling to be restless. Restless in our work, matching God's desire that no one should perish, but that everyone should come to faith in Jesus Christ. That should be the motivation of every single thing that we do in our lives. And there should be a restlessness inside of us because we know I have an eternal rest promised for me on the other side of Revelation 20 and 21. And so I can use every moment of my life in complete abandon for the cause of Christ and give everything so that as Paul says, I might save some. So the other question is, who have we shared with? Who have we shared the message of the gospel with? Who have we shown the gospel to in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, in the way that we care? How many times have we articulated that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, and that anyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life? Where is our passion for the gospel and for salvation and for baptism? Where's our urgency? 
And that's a dangerous word because I think sometimes we think about urgency as desperation and then we've got to be people who are desperate. And so what we do is we stack up on gospel tracks and we throw them at people and we yell the stuff at at shoppers and at people in the store. And we have this, this panic about us when we share the gospel. But when we look at Jesus, Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom with a sense of urgency, but not a sense of desperation. And so we need to model that in the way that we share the gospel. We don't know how long our time is, whether it's because of our last breath or because of Christ returning and making everything new. There will be a time when we can't do this work anymore, but as long as we're drawing breath, we, we can. And we have been given this time so that we can faithfully be ministers of the gospel. And maybe that is moving about, just evangelizing at every turn and just meeting a stranger by divine circumstances where we're able to speak the gospel and to share that with them or to show the love of Christ to somebody through our actions and through the things that we're able to do for them and ministering to them and also sharing the gospel with them. But also maybe it comes in those times when we have a family member who we've been in deep, burdened prayer because they know we know they don't know Christ. And sharing the gospel time and time again over weeks and over years and even over decades. And having the urgency to constantly come and faithfully share and faithfully love. But not having the desperation to feel like we have to shake them into it either. We've been given time. And God is patient with us and he's patient with this world and we can patiently share the gospel with those who need it. But there has to be a sense of urgency and a sense of passion every single day to make sure that this is not just something we do on special occasions or when we have programs at the church or when there's a special holiday coming up where it's easy to talk about Jesus, but that every single day, the theme and the message of our lives is proclaiming the gospel in both word and deed and trusting that God is going to work through us and the spirit is gonna draw people to himself and save people through our efforts. So one day the work of the church will cease. The number of God's people will be fulfilled. And the last sign that we see here that's gonna come up over the next few chapters is that Christ will return in judgment. Yes, one of the signs that Jesus is coming is that Jesus comes. It's a really obvious one. It happens quickly, but that's what we're going to be able to realize. Like, oh yeah, this is head. And the language that's used here is is heavy and deep. And we're going to get into some more of this as we continue on. But we see this language of two angels kind of separating the world. We see the grain being harvested and we see the grapes being harvested. And this is a similar kind of language and kind of picture that Jesus draws when he talks about his own coming, saying that he'll separate the sheep from the goats. And here we see this picture of both divine judgment and salvation, a separation of those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And we're going to talk about that as we see over the next several chapters, these enemies of God begin to fall. But there's also an important thing here that I don't want to miss about how we understand, again, this big word of eschatology, of studying what the Bible says about the end of at least this season of God's creation. So often we want to look for signs and it's really easy. I mean, it would have been nice to be able to post something on Instagram that we're about to this Sunday We're going to be talking about the signs of the end. There could be a big blood moon behind me and I could stand in a shadow and it would be really overwhelming. People would be like, I want to know 
know that. Like it really, it really helps push the meter a little bit. And so it would be nice to be able to have these fantastic things. And just so that we could look in the sky and be like, oh, I think we've got about three months, 32 hours and six minutes so that we can make our preparations. But here in this passage, we see that the only signs that we're given are only recognized really and fully at the end. These are things that it all stops and finishes and that's when Christ returns. And so the calling that we have here in this passage of scripture is to work until we don't and to witness until we can't. We can waste so much time trying to figure out things that aren't for us. This message, this understanding of when Christ is going to return and make all things right and all things new, that's not a message that we need to have. In fact, the Bible says that no one can know the day or the hour. And so let me just take a load off of you. If you've been really struggling with this as we've been going through the book of Revelation and figuring out some of these things, it's not your business. It's not your work. God knows. But as we wait, we've been given this calling to continue this work all the way till the end, to fight all the way until the bell. And so we have the calling to stop looking for signs and to start working for Christ, to stop passively anticipating some sort of end and start maximizing the present and the time that we've been given by worshiping God and loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and practicing for eternity, but also doing that thing that Jesus connects to it by loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving them enough to share the gospel with them. Loving them enough to show them the gospel, not just in our words, but also in our actions and the way that we love and care for them. Even people that we would identify as our enemies, God has put them in our lives so that we can show them something different. A God who doesn't simply love those who loves him, but a God who loves his enemies and gave himself up for them. We can show that to the people in our lives who have caused us pain and hurt and conflict. We've been given this time not to try to anticipate how all of this is going to go down, but to recognize that there are people in the here and now that are hurting and broken and hungry. And because we believe that there is coming a day when no one will hunger anymore and no one will be sick and no one will die anymore, we've been given the opportunity to show them a little glimpse of what that looks like by giving them something to eat and by meeting physical needs that God has given us the ability to do. And so we need to do the work of the kingdom until we experience the return of our king. And then we'll be able to take off the hat of kingdom building and enter into kingdom living. But until then, there is no breaks in the Christian life. There are no off days. There are no vacations. Every single day, hour, minute, and breath is given to us to be faithful stewards, to proclaim the message of the kingdom, love our neighbors ourselves, and to go and make disciples. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are so patient with us. It feels almost implied in what Peter says that not only are you patient because you want no one to perish, but you're patient because you've chosen us to be the ones to take that message out. And so God, we pray that we would just have the same passion and urgency that you do to see people saved by the gospel. But God, we need, we need you to encourage us because sometimes it can feel hard when we experience rejection or even 
hatred. Either because of you or because that's just sometimes how the world works, where we have people that, that don't like us and treat us poorly. It can be overwhelming and defeating. God, we need your forgiveness and your restoration when we sin because it makes us feel like we're not qualified anymore to do your work. God, we need you to maximize our rest because sometimes we can get so tired. And God, we need you to give us clear eyes because sometimes we forget to see eternity. God, we just ask and pray that you help us to be good and faithful workers from now until the end, whenever that may be, whether it's our last breath or seeing Christ come in glory. That those of us that you've called into salvation, that we would put our hands to the plow and we would not look back. God, we just pray that you would maximize our efforts because we are so weak and imperfect, but that you would do something strong and perfect through them and that these works and labors, when we lay them down at your feet, would echo throughout eternity in the faces of people that have come to know Christ through the work that you've given us. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.